0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of a changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dictate it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Friday, May 22nd, 2000. Nine. This is episode 205 of the Survival Podcast. Once again, as almost always the case, from my personal mobile studio, my 2006 five Jenna Diesel TDI, as I uh, cruise down the road between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. And uh, today's show is going to be a little bit different. I haven't done one of these in a while. It's going to be an answer to your question show, but of course, since I'm doing it mobile, I won't be splicing in phone calls. Uh, These are all questions that have come to me by email, through comments in the blog, on the forum, uh, through the feedback form. One way or another, they've been sent to me or they've been asked in public in my direction. Uh, And a lot of them are in uh, regard to uh, very recent shows. So I think this will be a good change up. It uh, it is hard to come up with a new topic uh, or redo topics every single day, give you guys a show every day. So again, I am moving more and more into a position where I'll be able to do more of the call-in shows, more interviews, things like that, to keep the show fresh and the direction changing. This is one way we can do it as a stopgap measure uh, up until then. Now, before I go into these uh, questions, let's go ahead and knock out our house cleaning. Number one, you know, check out our advertisers. They're the people that make doing the show possible. Uh, our advertiser of the day, SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis's operation, and whenever I mention him, I have to mention how good he has been to this show and how much he has donated and dedicated to this show back when we were a few hundred people. Uh, he's really believed in us from the beginning. He's really backed us. So uh, if you're in need of anything like he sells, buy from him instead of his competitors or buy from one of his resellers. His stuff is out there with other folks as well. Uh, number two, if you think you get more than a quarter's worth of value out of the Survival Podcast per episode, consider joining the member support brigade and supporting the show with a contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. and You'll get exclusive content only available to members as well, um, that's it. That's all we're going to do for house cleaning. Let's get right into the uh, to the topic today, and uh, let's start out with. I did a show, I guess, last week. Uh, Future predictions from the Survival Podcast. It was Friday last week. Uh, I should probably know before I go into this: uh, Monday is Memorial Day. It's a salute to our veterans that have died in battle. Uh, veterans Day is in November. That's all veterans. Memorial Day is about the people. They made the ultimate sacrifice while wearing the uniform of their country and gave their all, and then a little bit more, and never came home, or when they did come home, they came home um, with a flag draped over a casket. And uh, I know I did a show Veterans Day, I did a show Christmas Eve, I did a show a lot of different holidays. I will not be doing a show on Memorial Day. It's a day for reflection. All right, now let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, get into the questions. So recently I also did a show about uh, those future predictions. And one of the things that I said I see coming in that future is that the property values in cities will continue to or once again decline or decline further than they've already been. This has prompted a person to ask a question question which is basically my house lost about three or thirty thousand dollars and i'm thinking about cutting my losses selling now moving out should i do it should i stay you know that type of thing this is why i said when i did that show that i'm not gerald salenti and i'm not going down a record and saying these things absolutely will happen this is just my view of, of what you know i think is most probable the other thing with that is i didn't say that like Continuing from this point on into further oblivion, there's no resurrection of any prices of houses in the cities in the short term. I that was more of a long-term prediction. So I'll have to give you the following advice with that. Number one, you're the one that knows how you want to live. And you're the one that knows how long you can hang out. You're the one that knows your risk tolerance. So you're the one that can look out your window at all of your neighbor's homes and go, is this neighborhood stable? Is it getting better or is it getting worse? I don't care how good times are, that fact alone is a big indicator of whether you need to sell now. If you start to see a neighborhood in decay and it's starting to decline, it may really be a time to get out and get what you can if the loss is acceptable to you or not. The other side is, this person was saying, well, they would basically be commuting fairly long distance. I do it every day. I'm willing to do it. It doesn't cost me much money, really, because you know I use one tank of fuel a week, and even when gas was at, and diesel was at like 4 bucks. It didn't cost me too terribly to commute, but it does cost you in time. And if I wasn't doing this show during this commute, it would be a lot of wasted time. So, you know, it is important that you really think about how far you're willing to commute. And if you are commuting to Working Back every day, you probably don't have a really good remote location. You just have rural property. And all you've really done is kind of move to the suburbs or the outskirts of the suburbs. So you have to really think about that. If you're going to make Make the move permanent. Um you really need to think about where you're going to live and how can you try to stay as local to that area as possible with your work and your source of income. So I know that's not a complete answer. I just want to, I I can't give you a complete answer, even with the detail uh, that you gave me in the comments on the blog, because it's such a personal choice and a personal decision. Now, my other side of this is I do think that property values across the board will begin to go up throughout 2010. I think 2010 is going to look like a year of recovery. I think the market is going to do okay going through the rest of this year, and that there's reason to be hopeful and optimistic and expect a better economy next year than this year. I don't think, and I've always said from the very beginning, that this is the big crash. I think it's being touted as the big crash. Many people in the survivalist, prep community, gold-selling community, all of these things are capitalizing on this, and and it's, it's sensational and making it worse than it is. And I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm just saying I think we have one great big inflationary bubble to come. And when inflation hits, it almost never looks bad at first. It it, it emulates prosperity initially. And everybody gets really optimistic. And the band plays and everybody jumps in. And everybody thinks times are good. And when it starts to crest... Like, a, like water cresting over a dam, the crash comes on the other side. Now, as the inflation occurs, the damage was done about 70 to 80% of the way up before it crests over. It's very hard to pinpoint that. But, for instance, everybody looks at last year and thinks I was a genius because I said in, in, in June, get your money out of the market. I wasn't a genius. If I was a genius, I would have got my money out of the market in 2007. 2007, the inflation had started to kick in to the point where that's when the damage was done. It was done in 07, and it was done at the very beginning of 08, not June. It's just that the damage was so evident, so obvious, by June it it hadn't occurred yet, but you had to know it was coming if you were paying attention. So I think we have one more of those cycles at least left in us. The Fed has pumped a ton of money in. All this stimulus money is going to stimulate the economy. She's not going to do it long term. We've just given the biggest credit card in the world to our government. And if you take, think about it on microcosm, give a family a credit card, tell them you don't have to pay the bill for the first three years, there's a million dollar limit on it. They're going to look real good for three years. But when they have to pay the bill, it's going to be worse than ever. That's what I see happening to our economy. So don't think I'm saying that the economy is going to get fixed. I'm saying we're destroying it. But it'll look like it's getting better on the way down, and that may be your opportunity to sell your home. So I'm sure there's a lot of people in the same situation. It is what we're doing right now. We are targeting a sell sell date for early spring of 2010, with that being our reason for our place here in Arlington. So it's what we're doing. I'm not saying it's what you need to do. I'm just giving you my view, as always. I reserve the right to be wrong. Um, I had another question that was on... Bug out locations and finding rural properties that are cheap, uh, currently in distress situations with banks. Uh, but I guess it really applies to anybody buying any property anywhere. And it was what are my thoughts on renting to own? Renting-to-own is a, it's not usually a good idea for a variety of reasons. I'm not saying it's always bad, but if you understand why it's bad, usually you can maybe structure a deal that, that isn't as bad. Number one, you usually will spend just as much on a rent-to-own deal as you would if you'd go ahead and buy the property. So since that's the case and you don't own it, in general, the only reason to do rent to own is because you can't get a mortgage right now, and you're trying to establish and repair credit, and you want to go ahead and get into the home that you're going to eventually own and start shaping it in whatever way that is, whether it's interior, exterior, what have you. Now, you want the the the, uh, the, the advantage of living in a home versus living in an apartment today. You're not willing to wait until tomorrow. Well that does happen but think about how many problems we have cuz people want it today what they didn't want to wait till for tomorrow when they actually could afford to do it right so there's a caution there the other side though is let's say you go rent a home for $900 a month and your mortgage payment on it would be $1000 a month if you bought it and you say well I'm saving 100 bucks plus I'm coming down against the balance of the home number 1 most people that'll do a rent to own with you they don't let very much of your payment go against the mortgage balance. It's usually very low. It's almost always under 10%. And a lot of times, it's in the neighborhood of 2 to 3%. I think a lot of people have never actually tried to do it before. they just heard about the concept. They kick it around in their head. They think, well, if I go to rent to own and I'm paying $900 a month, man, like $500 going toward me eventually buying that house, it's going to be much more what principal and int- lower than principal and interest would be with a mortgage. Again, you lose. Another thing with rent to own is you don't get any tax advantages. If you went out and bought that house with a payment of a thousand dollars on it, part of that thousand dollar payment is property taxes and part of it is interest on the mortgage. Those two numbers are directly de- uh, deducted from your total income and give you a better uh, income tax rate uh, overall and you know owning a home actually does not cost the total payment now. That viewpoint is used to t- talk people into buying homes they can't afford. This math only works with a home that you can't afford. But that's why I'm not big on rent-to-owns. If you if you got to do it and there's no other way, it's an option. Just make sure you're aware of those things and you do whatever you can to mitigate them. And make sure that you really can't buy a home before you choose rent-to-own. Don't just assume you can't get a mortgage. Go out and give it a shot. Give it a try. Get a good company. Get a good bank that does their own underwriting. And you might be surprised. Another one is, uh, I've had quite a few versions of this since I've been talking about bug-out locations quite a bit lately, Uh, and the permaculture stuff, because permaculture obviously means you have a place that you are stationary at, that you work on, that you spend time at, and it's basically various versions of isn't it better to be mobile, I think you're better off, you know, things like I think we'd be better off with an RV and then be able to go wherever safety might be, uh, to be able to travel around, not be tied down, easier to pay off, don't have an underlying... Mortgage on the value of the property once it's paid for, no property taxes, all kinds of advantages. Biggest ones being no property taxes and being mobile and agile. Okay, But you have to have income. You have to have some income. You don't have any income. can't afford to put gas in the RV. Now, there are people that actually live on, you know, less than $10,000 a year with a some sort of mobile situation, and they do odd jobs for cash where they can find it, things like that. But everybody that's asking about this isn't this is saying, well, this would be a lifestyle for now. They're, they're pointing out how much more advantageous it would be, and a true shit hit the fan where people like me with a bug-out location, since we're stationary, would have to sit and take it when somebody came to invade us and take away what we had. So what you're telling me is people like me in my remote location, miles and miles away from any really highly dense population, the end of a dirt road with a gate with six like-minded neighbors who have all pledged that we're willing to defend and protect each other, with quite a few people just like that all the way in until you even get to the gate, Well-stocked, prepared, and knowing what we're dealing for, we're in a situation where society breaks down so bad that even we are not safe. And you're going to be safe towing or driving an RV on the highway? You know, RVs aren't the best four-wheel drive vehicles. You might be able to run around the desert a little bit with them, but uh, you ain't going through the woods with an RV. You really have to think about that, folks. I'll I'll leave it there for you guys to kick around from that point out, but I'm telling you, if I'm not safe in my bug-out location, I I don't know where you're going to go with that RV, and I don't know where you're going to find fuel to run it. They get about, you know, three or four miles to the gallon, most of the motor coaches, and even a truck that gets 18 drops to, like, 9 or 10 when you're towing something really heavy behind it. So I I don't know. I I, I think travel trailers, RVs are useful. I want one. I think that in a certain types of shit-hit-the-fan scenarios, uh, they're very useful. I think that you get a lot of utility out of them even when the shit hasn't hit the fan. They can be, again, if you're out at your bug-out location, you have a travel trailer, let's say we have a pandemic, you have family that come out and want to live with you, you could drag the RV out to the edge of your compound and say, hey, you know what, you guys get there, the RV's unlocked, you guys live in there for two or three weeks, nobody has any symptoms, you guys can come interact with the rest of us. Uh, and and when people come visit they're a guest house and if you go take a trip down like I I like to take trips to the Texas coast park it on the beach and you camp out so I think there's tons of uh, utility there, tons of advantage I just don't think in a true global breakdown shit, the fan, if we ever see you know, the end of the world as we know it that they're anywhere near as good an option is a well defended piece of property that you've made significant investments in improving because because you're a lot more likely to be able to sustain yourself there and to form community around you and have the protection that comes from numbers of like-minded individuals. Just my view on it. Uh, I had another question from a guy. It was a really great one. I answered this one on the blog in text, but I'll answer it here. It's basically, will we see uh, a return to the family farms of the 30s? You know, even though there was a depression, we had a lot of family farmers, and uh, they were able to provide for themselves to a large degree, except in the Dust Bowl, for instance. But, you know, around most of the rest of the country, the family farmer actually did okay because he could feed himself. And... Uh, You know, will we see that come back? And I think the answer is yes and no. The reason it's no is because even at that time, and this is why many of those family farms didn't fare so well, and actually the Depression wasn't where they shined. It was where a lot of them died off and got conglomerated into big agricultures. They were already practicing monoculture. The little family farm, 20 acres to 60 acres, was already growing all corn or all wheat or all barley, long rows. Dependent on rainfall. Um, already starting to use chemical fertilizers. Not at the level they used after World War II, but World War One was the advent of them. And because of that, when we had a Dust Bowl, and that's part of why we had a Dust Bowl, by the way, and when we had a major recession and the value of what they were selling went down, a lot of them lost the farms. So I think I think that the people that would like to have the small farm's return and want to be part of actually being behind them have learned their lesson about monoculture and learned their lesson about it, you know not using organic methodologies and have learned their lesson about not using very smart methods of harvesting water. And I think the return that we'll see to the family farms are going to be much smaller farms than back then. It was very common for even fairly poor people to have 40 to 60 acres. I think we're going to see family farms in the range of two to ten acres. Very intensively managed, very high yielding, very productive, very, very diverse in what they produce. Uh, You might see a two-acre farm producing 50 or 60 different things that go to market. Items, individual uh, items, and I, you know, the DeVeaux. If you start, if you start counting greens, they're they're probably up around 500 on a tenth of an acre. So if you want to start saying, well, lettuce is not just lettuce; it's this, the uh, 50 varieties of lettuce we grow here. You'll see somebody with uh, with five acres of uh, good fertile land being intensively managed, producing over a thousand varieties. Uh, you're going to see heavy use of organic methodologies, not because it's more marketable, but because because when you're selling local, long-term storage will be less important, shipability, things like that. Flavor, freshness will take on you know the things that are going to be more highly valued. And that's the kind of uh, revolution that I see coming uh, from that market. So yeah, we're going to go back to family farms. We're going to see a lot more of it, a lot more local food growing. And this is one of the reasons, like when H.R. 875 was just being kicked around, and I think it's still out there, and I still think we need to kill it, that's what H.R. 875 is about folks you get tinfoil hack guys that go they're going to take away my tomatoes and my pepper plants in my backyard, no they're not but they're going to prevent these 2-10 these to 10 acre farms from ever becoming a reality and solving our problem and effectively by their numbers competing with big agriculture that's the danger of that bill, that's why it needs to be defeated, because of what's coming in the future, not what is already here today So there's my thoughts there. Uh, Another question, uh, there was a lot of questions that came out of my prediction show. It it was, well, if like the big cities, Dallas, Houston, New York, L.A., San Fran, will actually see populations decline. Will it all be rural growth, or will we start to see like second and third tier cities grow? And I think we will, and we won't. I think it's going to depend on how those cities are being managed and run and operated by the people that manage, run, and operate them. If you put me in charge of a city right now, maybe I would want to be mayor. Screw politics. You made me city manager, so you're going to set and uh, set the agenda and direction that this city is going to take. And let's say this was a city, I don't know, twenty thousand people in it, Uh, lots of uh, land around it in big chunks that's uh, slated for development once the development is uh, warranted, Uh, plenty of room for growth, reasonable natural resources, reasonable local economy. And they said, well, what we want to start doing is we want to grow this city. We want to take it from 15,000 people uh, to about 30 to 40,000 people, make it sustainable for that, and we really want to try to not encourage more uh, people to come here once we hit that number. That's kind of our goal. I don't even know if any city is thinking that intelligently yet, but if you said that to me, what I'd say is, okay, let me, let me, let me break this down for you right now. People don't want 10th of an acre lots anymore, and the people that want to live in the cities, they want to be able to grow things, they want to be able to stretch out, but they they still want to have close-knit communities. Let's start building our neighborhoods with a minimum lot size of a half acre at least. And an acre would be better. So spread the houses out. That's going to control your population within your city and your city limits because we're going to put less density in. So we're going to create this room for growth. The existing structures that are already here will give the people that want the density uh, type of living that, that option. So, that, you know, you, you now can serve both types of people with your city, the people that want a little bit more room and the people that want a little bit less room, I would say immediately you need to go out and purchase some 10 to 20 acre tracts that you're going to convert into parkland and go ahead and start practicing some community permaculture there. Start putting in chestnut trees, walnut trees, apple trees, fruit trees. Don't landscape your parks with sterile shit. Put in good quality food-producing crops. Don't worry about any surplus. If we don't have our people locally use it, let's put together a community organization that's designed to go out and harvest everything. Uh, as the harvests come through, food is distributed to the community, basically not to the poor. Anybody that wants some, comes. you want some fresh apples? Show up on apple picking day. Pick your own freaking apples. All right, Pick, Take whatever you want. But show up and do some work. I would run the entire city with that philosophy. And I would get the community involved in doing the plantings in these tracks from day one. And I would create these green belts throughout the city. And I would make it a very, very nice place to live. And I would make it a very pro-Second Amendment city. I would have the loosest gun laws available within my state, whatever I was allowed to do. I would create watersheds everywhere that I possibly could. I would encourage community activity and community education. I wouldn't do it with money. I would set the resources up that make it available for people that want to do it at very, very low cost to the city. And I think, yeah, you could double the population of a city like that uh, over the next decade fairly easily. You could make it a very prosperous place for people uh, to live, work, and and interact. You could make it a very low cost of living uh, because a lot of the problems that we typically see in America's cities would go away. I would hire absolutely crack law enforcement officers, top-notch, the best of the best that I could find out of the larger cities that can recognize the problems of gas gang violence and things like that, where they're showing up. I would make it absolutely impossible to have any type of organized criminal activity centered around drugs or gangs in that city. It would be, I don't, you know what, we're not writing tickets, guys. You know, if there's a t- if you see a guy doing something really reckless, driving 80 in a 40, pull him over, and give him a ticket. Your job is not to run around. You guys are out to blitzkrieg anything that makes this city unsafe for our population. Little crack alley start you, you know, we start having little crack houses pop up somewhere. 10 officers freaking live right in front of those houses. They live there until those people go away. And it was done in South Philly, folks. You can do it in South Philly. You can do it in a city of 15,000 to 20,000. I would never let that cancer start up. That's how I would run that city i 've set the agenda as a city manager, then it would be up to a mayor and a city council. So if somebody can build a city like that, those cities will grow and I think cities will do little parts of that, and then those will be the ones that will see some growth i don 't know that you 'll see any particular pattern here because what 's going to happen is not you know one city will grow another city 'll shrink. That's the upshot. And a lot of the little cities will, will grow somewhat as the bigger cities shrink. But once they hit a certain capacity... They either have to, by the way they design the city, prevent it from exceeding that capacity and kind of cap the growth of the city where people go, you know what, this is kind of a limit to what we're going to do. We need to kind of go emulate this somewhere else and start to kind of create a sister city, kind of like a Minneapolis-St. Paul in miniature or Dallas-Fort Worth in miniature, or we're just going to go find something completely different because there's not enough space to build more houses here because the thing's been designed from the beginning to have that finite limitation. So hopefully that makes sense. In other words, no skyscrapers. It wouldn't be a single building uh, higher than maybe four stories, and those would only be zoned commercial. Anything residential, would try to cap it at two stories. Not so much with oppression and the law, but with just basically making it. That's what's cool to have. All right, so there you go. Um, next question. Well, I put a figure. On swine flu's potential to come back and actually be very serious in the fall. In other words, is it 50/50? Is it 30/70? What What would I lay down as if they said, Jack, you just got to put a number on the potential for swine flu to come back in the fall and have a lethality rate, you know, up at over two percent, which would be very, very serious and spread as quickly or more quickly than the common flu does during flu season, and be a serious, serious. Problem uh, 20 to 25 percent, and I don't have a medical degree, and there's things that we don't know on both sides of it, but you want a figure from me, that's my real gut. Another question, do I think people will uh, start to gravitate towards smaller houses, not just uh, smaller houses, like I said, with three-bedroom, two-bath on an acre or two in, in the in the far-out suburbs or in the country or in rural properties, but actually these little mini-houses, these you know, 500 square feet or less houses? I do but not the way I think most people are thinking. We, we see these little cute stories about this lady that went out and got scrap wood, and she built a 200-acre cabin that basically could be put up on wheels and taken somewhere else. If she, she moves and she bumps some land from a family member or a friend that has two or three acres, and she has her own little yard that she keeps on that property, and she stuck her little cabin there, and she lives there with her dog and her cat, and they're happy. Right, and they have a little garden and do that type of thing. I think there'll be some people that like to do that, but I don't think that people will make that their structure that they live in two hundred square feet. Those little micro houses. I do think that you will start to see people that move into rural environments though, that buy raw land and decide I'm gonna build my own house, maybe utilize four, five, six, or seven of those little micro 200-square-feet houses. In other words, I might decide, you know what, for my family and I, we want 2,000-square-feet of living space, but I may make that 2,000-square-feet of living space uh, come from five structures, and those five structures may each have about 400-square-feet, like a little compound, And that seems less efficient, but if you have, let's say, an acre or more of land, and you strategically locate them and have each little place have its own function, it actually can be highly, highly efficient, especially if you're using a lot of alternative energy sources. Here's what I mean. You can have your kitchen... Your little kitchen and, and dining area room of 400 square feet, and all that heat that's produced by cooking is only in that one place, and you only have to, to cool it uh, when you eat there or when you're cooking there. And you basically shut everything off. You're not using any energy or power whatsoever in there unless you're using it. You could have like a little sleeping compound and an entertainment compound and a place that's like an office and you break up all of those. And you only have to pay to keep them hot or cool when you're actually in them and utilizing them. I and mean, if you think about a lot of the rooms in your house that you don't go to very often, you still have to keep them cool for when you do go in there. It takes a long time to cool them down. And this this whole concept of I'm going to block off my guest bedroom. I'm going to shut the door, close the air vents, and all, and just let it get hot as hell in there. It doesn't save the money people thinks it, thinks it does because you have this little cell, this little pocket of hot air within the the confines of the four main walls of your house, and your house is actually more difficult to keep cool in many situations. So I think that there's an efficiency and a value and a cost savings because if you ask a person to build themselves a 2,000 square foot home from scratch, it's actually pretty hard to do. If you ask them to build themselves a 300 square foot little mini cabin, a lot of people with just a little bit of uh, skill, a little bit of uh, carpentry skill, can actually pull that one off. So it's more it's more feasible for people to actually kind of make happen uh, and do it over time. So I can build like a little structure that gets me by as my initial place to live on the property, and then instead of trying to build a kitchen into a giant house that takes me forever to build. I could build myself a kitchen dining little mini cabin, and I could continue that on, and eventually I could create a pretty cool little situation with a lot of efficiencies and a lot of effective use of passive alternative energy, like passive cooling, passive uh, heating. A a two or three hundred square foot little cabin uh, is really pretty easy to cool with fans versus air conditioners, as long as you build it where there's a lot of shade. And the ones that you spend the absolute most time in are the ones you can spend the maximum amount of money just insulating the heck out of. There's an interesting one I never even thought of before and I don't think it's really that big a deal or an issue. Um, Somebody asked me, well, if you're you know, you have a compost heap but you're doing all organic gardening, no GMO seed, um, no chemicals, no pesticides, no fertilizers, but you're also still buying food from the supermarket, and you're throwing your banana peels, your orange peels, your corn husks, you know, all the waste that comes from grocery stores into your compost pile, or you're buying commercially produced compost that may have been, uh, you know, not organically farmed. Are you still organic, and is there a risk there? I don't really think there is. I think that... That nature is pretty effective uh, at breaking things down, and if we just stop doing things. In other words, if I use regular fertilizer in my garden for three or four seasons, and uh, I finally wake up and decide organic's the way to go, and I start organic gardening, two years later, all the damage that I've done with my uh, my fertilizers and chemicals has pretty much been repaired by nature. And when I think you take the, your um, your broccoli head, you know, the bottom of it that's kind of those hard stick parts you don't eat that you bought that may have been sprayed with something and you cook it in a compost heap at 180 degrees until it breaks down in this basically new soil, I think you've pretty much fixed that problem and you don't really have to worry about it anymore. Um, I just don't see, you know, even with GMOs, I don't see when you take that corn husk and break it down, the GMO, you know, climbing through, you know, just, I don't think that's an issue. I really wouldn't worry about it. Uh, Another question I've been getting quite a bit lately, uh, ever since my, uh, about two trips ago to Arkansas, when I posted some pictures and my truck was uh, seen in the background of those pictures, my big old blue Dodge four-wheel drive. Is my truck a diesel, too, and if so, why or why not? Uh, My truck is not a diesel, it's gas. The reason why uh, is because we got a really great deal on it. We bought it as a, uh, as a leftover. It's a 2002, uh, purchased in 2003, late in 2003, when actually Dodge was mostly selling 2004s. So the deal was why we bought it, and it didn't happen to be diesel. If it was diesel, we still would have bought it. Uh, so it really wasn't that big a consideration for me in late 2003. Um, another reason is I have to admit in 2003 I wasn't quite the prepper I am today I was still coming out of my my final tail end of my 10 years almost of comatosis of working the corporate American dream traveling all around Um, we did little things you know. we had really kind of had a bit of a wake up from Y2K not from what happened or didn't happen but from the fact that it just raised some questions for us, made us remember some things but if I was buying a new truck today, I would highly lean toward a diesel. I think that diesel is uh, is something that you can find substitutes for much more easily than gasoline. You can pretty much burn Wesson corn oil. In a diesel vehicle The the biodiesel process makes it more efficient And the biggest thing that the, You see these people that are out And they're making their own biodiesel uh, From like oil and lard and fats That they're getting from fast food joints And things like that What they're doing is They're not really changing much of anything they're 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 putting certain things into it that if you think about it, if you took a, a a glass of corn oil and stick it in your refrigerator for about three hours and you went back and you looked at it, it's all gel. Looks like a gross form of Jello. Well, the reason is because that's what happens when you put an oil in a cold weather. So you could pretty much take Western oil. Now i not go through it just to see if it works because I don't know what vehicle you actually have or what warranty you have, but you pretty much go to the store and get a couple gallons of Wesson oil and dump it into any standard diesel and it'll just run. It'll just burn it and run it. The, 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 The process is more about making sure when the temperature drops to 30 degrees that it doesn't gum up your injectors and your motor and ruin your vehicle. All right, so cold is the enemy there, not the oil itself in its natural form. Biodiesel is pretty much oil with some modifications so it doesn't gel up. Got you? All right, so I would buy a diesel today, all things being equal, unless I still had the massively awesome deal that I got on my truck. I paid about $24,000 for that truck, and they were selling for up in the 30s. All right, uh, next one. um... Well, I take a solid stand. Is Tamiflu good or bad? I've been told I'm a, I'm a uh, flip-flopper on Tamiflu. One day I don't like it, the next day I do. One day it's going to save us all, the next day it's going to kill us all. I don't know where the guy got to kill us all. Thing. I've never said is going to kill us all. I've specifically said it won't. Here, here's my good and bad on Tamiflu. This is my official position. Call it waffling if you want to. It's how I really feel. Tamiflu is a valuable drug. It has the ability to slow down the progression of flu, of certain strains and varieties of flu, including this H1N1 swine flu. For people that um, are really susceptible to the disease and may end up dead or seriously afflicted by it, it makes sense to use it like a sniper's weapon, targeted and direct. The problems with Tamiflu is there are side effects. So the person that's taking it needs to be notified of what those side effects and risks are and weigh them against the risks of just allowing the flu to progress and not taking Tamiflu. So I think it's an individual decision. I think for most people, if you're the kind of person that uh, this flu is killing, the risks of the flu outweigh the risks of the Tamiflu drug. My big concern with Tamiflu is it seems to very rapidly uh, create resistance and mutations in the flu and if we use it on a wide scale it's not the danger directly from the Tamiflu, it's the mutations and the new resistant forms of the flu that it may create, so I think it's a useful tool, my concern is overuse of it creating mutation and resistant strains of the flu that will become even worse and more lethal and more deadly long term but no, it's not a government plot to kill us all, It's just what happened when science starts meddling with nature. And we've seen it with resistant resistant forms of bacteria uh, to antibiotics. It's the same type of effect. All right. Uh, My last question as I uh, wrap things up. Is the ammo shortage real, or is it a government plot to disarm us by taking away bullets? Um, The ammo shortage is real. It is caused by the government, particularly by Barack Obama, and it's been caused by you and I and everybody else that's freaked out and thinks that we're at an end game, buying as much as they can. But it's not a plot. I'm sure the government's not sad about it, but they're not happy about it either. It does not just affect you and me. There's not a giant stockpile of ammo that we don't know about that they're hiding from us. They haven't gone in and curtailed production at Remington or Winchester or Federal. Uh, Those guys are working as hard as they can to get as Much ammo out as they can because it's making them lots of money right now. Let me tell you something that's really going on. My brother in law told me that Grand Prairie Police Department is having as much trouble getting ammo as everybody else, but they're getting their ammo. They're getting their ammo because they have contracts with the ammo producers to provide a minimum amount of ammo for their practicing and their range fire and, you know, replacement of duty ammo and everything else that have to be fulfilled. The people that have these contracts with them, however, are coming in and saying, yeah, um, you know, when we signed that contract with you for the ammo at a certain price and number, there wasn't a shortage, so, you know, we can give you your ammo, but we'd like to renegotiate the price because we could take it and sell it to a cat." Academy now for a lot more money because the demand is up, and what the police departments coming back with is, yeah, you do that. You force us to pay more now, and when your contract terminates, we'll sign with somebody else because we know this is a short-term thing. So that's what's really going on there. Now, you'd say to yourself, and I've said the same thing, why the hell doesn't Remington, Winchester, Federal, on the component side and on the direct ammo production side, really ramp production up higher than where it is today? Because they don't believe it's a permanent thing either. You don't just start making more. You, to make more, you have to, to make significant financial investments that has long long term viability. In other words, you have to put in new machines. You have to, you know, and it's really hiring employees. That's okay. You hire employees, production falls off. You lay them off. That's that's really a variable expense. But you have to put in new equipment, new machinery, to handle the new demand. Well, if you go invest in a whole bunch of new machinery and new factory space, and new warehouse space, and all the other things you need to increase production, and that new demand goes away, now you've made the investment that you can't recover. So I think that the ammunition makers are very leery to expand that production capability for a short-term bump that they're they're afraid is going to go away and not be sustainable. That eventually, anybody goes, 10,000 rounds is enough. I don't need to buy, and then all this glut buying of ammunition when nothing goes wrong, the guy that's sitting on 20,000 rounds of forty five ACP right now is going to realize, what the hell did I do this for? Just like generators after Y2K and they're going into like a year from now, there's going to be a huge secondary market for ammunition. Guys going Man, I don't need 20,000 rounds of this, 10's enough, and dumping that surplus ammunition back into the market. So I think that's that's the dynamic that's there. My final thought though on ammo is I hope you guys that think, well the way to make sure you can always get ammo is forty-five non millimeter 308-223. Most commonly available military ammo in the world. That's what they all standardize on, because that's what's going to be available in the most locations. Well you know what? I can buy lots of 38 Special right now. I can buy reasonable amounts of 40 Smith and Wesson. I can't find around a 45 ACP. I can't find much two two three. I can't find much three zero eight. The stuff that I can find is very expensive, highly specialized hunting versions of them. I can get all thirty thirty I want. Massive them at thirty thirty and still cheap. Thirty zero six went out of vogue when three zero eight came out in the sixties. I can get all thirty zero six I want right now. They all do the same thing. I hope this has dispelled the myth of commonly available ammunition for a lot of folks. I know for a fact that one of our members, Shannon Appleby, was just offered a box of 145 ACP, and the guy selling it to him wanted 100 bucks for it. Shannon, I got some 38 Special. I'll sell you for a lot cheaper than that, you know. That's how i tell you there. Just, you know, think about that. And uh, hopefully this just shows me kind of a change-up, a little bit different than uh, the shows that I usually do in the car because it's more direct feedback, lots of topics, lots of subjects. I'll try to do more like this in the future. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this one. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. It's time Wonder to get tough, or even if it out You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets banned.